The sermon text this morning is from Judges. I'll be reading three sections, starting in chapter 8, verses 22 through 28. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Chapter 9, verse 1 through 6. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of the leaders of Shechem, Which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-bereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, Seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel twenty-three years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel twenty-two years. And he had thirty sons who rode on thirty donkeys, and they had thirty cities called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kaman. Got a little ground to cover. Um, so when I was growing up, we watched this uh, sporting show called The Wide World of Sports. Uh, it was big in the 60s, 70s, maybe it slipped into the 80s, but it kind of took all the sports events of the world and kind of brought them in for one hour. You were just filled with all the stuff that was going on in the world of sports. But they always had the same line that introduced the show, and that was the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. The thrill of victory and the agony of defeat just kind of shows the high points in sports and the agony of defeat. And the agony of defeat actually was, it, it was always said as this skier on a high jump. You know, you go down that long jump and they see how far they can fly through the air and land. 
And uh, it was actually the 50th anniversary of that event uh, just last March. But anyways, he, he goes down, he hits the low point, he's about to take off, he crashes to the right and flies into the crowd and bounces around like a rag doll, ends up breaking his ankle, having a concussion. But it was the victory of defeat. You know, the thrill of victory was followed by this agony of defeat. Now, in, in some ways, this is really a picture of what we're walking through or what we're threatened by in this world. You know, many of you have come to faith in Christ. You understand the gospel. Your lives have been changed by it. And then time goes on. You fight sin. You struggle with conflict in your marriage or in your friendships. And, and, and the years begin to pass between when you came to faith in Christ and where you are now. And there's kind of this maybe growing indifference or ambivalence. And, and for many, it just kind of wanders off in terms of falling away from the faith or just growing indifferent to the faith. Even though there was a thrill of victory when you came to understand the beauty of God and his gospel and the beauty of his son. But now, 10, 20, 30 years later, it isn't the same to you. It, isn't as, it doesn't grab you. It doesn't engage you. Really, it's a picture of what we're dealing with here in our passage. You see the thrill of victory when he crushes the the Midian army. You see the victory there, the unique victory. And then you see, as was read, just this downward spiral by Gideon and his entire family. You know, you see something different in Judges now. You know, normally, as we've gone through the book, the judge brings the people to God. And then the judge dies, and then years later they fall back into evil. But here for the first time, they're falling back into evil while the judge is alive. So we're going to look at kind of Gideon and Abimelech, his son, and they become, if you will, a window through which we understand our own lives in terms of how to finish well. They didn't finish well. I am thankful the Bible doesn't gloss over and pretty up its people. It lets us see them who they are. To me, this is not overwhelmingly discouraging. You know, as we get deeper into Judges, this can be harder and harder to find hope, but we find it. Remember Paul writes in Romans 15, he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We can draw hope from this passage as we learn from it. Now, we're going to see Gideon. He's going to fade from the glory that he had, He is going to falter and fail in faith, and his legacy is going to be forsaken. But if we walk away without gaining hope for us, then we're not not hearing the story. It was written for our benefit. That is us right now. So what I want to do is I'm going to go through the story, the three passages that Miriam read, and then I want to draw seven lessons on how to finish well. That's what I want to get at, how to finish well. This isn't just for those of us in our later years. This is for those of you who are young and putting into place practices and habits now that will enable you to finish well. That's what I want to do. I want us to finish well. We all know the stories of those who have not. We don't want to participate in those. We don't want to be a story to be told. Don't do this. Uh, So let's look at the story. First, Gideon fading in glory. Now, Miriam read from 822, that is when they wanted to make Gideon king. 
Before that, though, in the first 21 verses, you have Gideon doing this mop-up operation, right? Uh, 15,000 of the soldiers had broken free, and so, and so Gideon and his 300 men and others are pursuing them. That's what you'll read in the first 21 verses. And they are pursuing them east, back to, back to their country. And what we find here is after this great victory, immediately there's conflict within the people of Israel. The first one is with the people of Ephraim. You can look in your Bibles in verse 2. It says, what is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. So here on the heels of this victory, now Ephraim is kind of going after Gideon, saying, hey, you should have called us earlier. Now he did call them, if you remember, at the end of the battle. They were the ones that killed those two Midianite princes. But, but what else is going on? I would submit to you that if he had called them earlier in the battle, they wouldn't have come. Why are they angry now? Why are they wanting a piece of the action now? Well, I think because it's a victory. I mean, I, I think the desire is I want, we want to be part of the glory. Maybe they were jealous of Gideon. Gideon was from Manasseh, which was a weaker tribe. The, the tribe of Ephraim was a stronger tribe, militarily, financially. Maybe they wanted you know, some of the glory. Maybe they were jealous of what God was doing through Gideon. Maybe they were just greedy. And they wanted a bigger percentage of the spoils of the war. But here you have, even after the victory that he experienced, immediately there's conflict. We see the same thing in our lives. But he just doesn't have conflict with Ephraim. He has conflict with two other towns, Succoth and Peniel. And these two towns, as he was pursuing these soldiers through, he asked them for supplies. And they said, where are the kings that you're pursuing? In other words, before we give you supplies, we want to make sure you're going to have the victory. Now, I think they were probably in fear of man. I think they, these two towns were on the east of the Jordan, so they were closer to the country of Midian. And without the kings being killed, they probably thought, well, we don't want to help Gideon too quickly because if these kings kind of regain power and an army, we'll be the first ones that they go after. And so they refuse him treatment, his own people. And then you see Gideon kind of getting a little bit nasty because he threatens them with judgment. And he does come back when he catches the kings, he comes back. And what he does is he scourges their leaders of one town with briars and thorns. Scourges them, whips them. And then he kills the men of the other town. He kills them. This is now Israel against Israel. What's happening here? I mean, what, what do we, and not, not just that, but then Gideon, when he catches the kings, he brings them back and he kills them. But here's what he says to him. And this is in 18 to 20. He said to Ziba and Zalmunna, he says, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so are they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. These are the two kings of Midian. Gideon says, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So Gideon now, who's been called by God to be a judge, to bring about divine justice upon the wicked, now is going after on a personal vengeance level. You see Gideon kind of slipping here. The victory, the thrill of the victory that he had was given by the grace of God. You see little grace now operating in his life. So you see Gideon begin to fade a bit. Uh, Gideon is in the hall of faith. But this is the warning for us. He begins to fade. But he doesn't just fade, he actually fails. And this happens in the next step. From chapter 8, verse 22 through the end of the chapter, the people ask him to be king. You heard that. Let me just read a couple of verses. 
in 8.22, he says, The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon. Now, let me stop right there. The people are, are making a bad move here, right? God is the king over Israel. They're now seeking Gideon to be king. Now, they just don't want to be king. They want this to be a dynastic kingdom or a hereditary kingdom. They want Gideon to rule and Gideon's sons after he dies and Gideon's grandsons after him. So what they're really doing is rejecting the rule of God, wanting a human ruler that they can see and go fight their battles. They're putting their hope in him. Now, you see Gideon respond well. He says, uh, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. And the Lord will rule over you. We think, good move. Way to go, Gideon. But look what follows next. In the next verse, and Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. <clears throat> you see a turn here. He answers rightly, but you see where his heart is inclined. He says, I won't be a king, but he begins to live like a king. So he begins to take money from people. If you read through the end of the chapter, he begins to pick up wives and more wives and more wives, concubines. He begins to father sons. He'll have 70 sons. You see him begin to live like a king, even though he said he didn't want to be king. But not just that. You see that he takes the jewels and he makes this ephod. And ephod was the, it's like a vest worn by the high priest. It had these 12 precious stones and the high priest would wear it in worship. And, and the high priest would wear it to receive direction from God about which way to go, what to do. And so you see Gideon begin to make his own center of worship. He begins to buy into this king stuff, writing his own laws, and he sets up this ephod. And this ephod becomes a place where he can give direction. Gideon doesn't want to just be king. He wants to be prophet, priest, and king. He wants to be the prophet to give the word of God, the priest to wear the ephod, and king to rule. So you see Gideon sliding terribly. <clears throat> this is a tragedy. Someone like Gideon falling so far. You know, it's, it's amazing the irony that he led the people out of bondage to idolatry and now he ends up leading them back into bondage to idolatry. You see that at the end in 28, he says, and all Israel whored after it there, like prostitutes pursuing this ephod and it became a snare to Gideon and the family. And it would eventually... Uh, it would eventuate into all of Israel beginning to not just whore after the ephod, but even after the Baals. So you see him fail. You see, first he begins to kind of fade from the glory that he had from the victory. Now he fails in faith. And look at his legacy because it's forsaken. This is what chapter 9 is about. Chapter 9 is about Abimelech. And Abimelech was one of his sons. He was the son of a concubine. He was, the, he was an illegitimate son. And, and Abimelech, um, incidentally, Abimelech name means my father, the king. So it just shows you more how Gideon wanted to be king. But Abimelech decides he wants to be king. And so what he does is he murders his 70 brothers. At least he tried to murder all 70. He murdered 69 of them. Only one got away. Abimelech is kind of the personification of what happens 
to Israel. We look at all our culture and we think how it's kind of spiraling downwards. We have examples of this over and over in Scripture. Abimelech appoints himself as king. Now, all the other judges were appointed by God. He appoints himself. The judges were raised up to liberate Israel. He's oppressing Israel. The judges were raised up to save Israel. He is killing Israel and killing all of his brothers. In fact, Abimelech actually is not even a judge. He's an anti-judge. He's against God. You know that because in chapter 8, 35, all the way through chapter 10, 5, there's no mention of God. There's no voice of God even being spoken. You don't see God at all. Now, just because God's silent doesn't mean he wasn't there. And so he raises up Jotham, the one son, providentially, that was saved gives this testimony as you read through chapter 9. He'll, he gives this parable about these trees. And what he's saying basically in the parable is, what you have done will come back on you. And it does. What God In chapter 8, verse 23, God sends an evil spirit. Remember, God is sovereign. God is not the source of evil, but he will use evil to destroy evil. And he does. He sends evil spirit among the people. They rebel against Abimelech. Abimelech then rebels against them pursues them, kills the men of the town, chases the leaders up a tower, a thousand of them, and burns it down. He's bloodthirsty king. It's a personification of evil. And he continues his rampage by going after another town. And it was there that a woman just pulled, pushed a millstone over the side of the wall, and, he cr and his head was crushed. Just like Sisera a few chapters ago. A woman brings about his death. Not through some noble fight with swords clashing, but just a woman's tool, a millstone grinding grain, is all God needs and Abimelech has. But I, I don't want you to think, well, that's just the way karma works. Karma works. You know, that, that bad you do bad and bad comes to you. It's not a boomerang effect. Because you see in 56 and 57 of chapter 9, it says, Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech which he committed against his father in killing the 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham. So you see here that God is bringing about this ruin. So here you have the thrill of victory. Last week was exciting. <clears throat> 300 men with pots and torches and bugles can rout an army of 135,000 men. You know, past successes don't guarantee future faithfulness. And we see that right here. We see it right here, that he did not finish well. He didn't finish well. So what do we do with a story like this? Well, I, I want to draw, as I said, seven lessons out of this for us to finish well. I only want you to grab one or two of them. I mean, you probably, if you want the seven, I can send you the transcript. But I just want you to grab one or two of them because I want you to see how incredibly simple but important they are. How do we, you have Gideon here, used of God so mightily, and yet he falls so far. We want to finish well. We want to finish well. And again, that's just not for us over 60. That's for you 20. Because if you don't put it, you know that they say, an action becomes a habit. Habit becomes character, and character becomes destiny. So what we do matters now. So here are the seven takeaways that I'd have for you just to ponder. First, if we want to finish well, we have to remember the grace of the gospel. We have to remember the grace of the gospel. Why do I say that? Well, look with me back at chapter 8, verse 34. 
he says this, And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all the enemies. Think about what God's done. He brought them out of Egypt. We've seen that. He brought them away from the Moabites. We saw that. He, he saved them from the Philistine. He saved them from the Midianites. We see God continue to act with delivering grace. They forgot it. And you say, well, how could they have forgotten it? It was such a big victory. Well, this is years later. You know how it is, your own life. You've seen God. He's done great things in your life. But then two, three, four, five, ten years pass. It doesn't have the same luster to it. You begin to forget about it. It's not that big a deal to you anymore. Many of you have experienced God in a profound way years back. But you've kind of forgotten about it. Remember, forgetting it isn't denying the truth of it. It just doesn't have any impact on your life right now. That's what it means to forget. To forget means that it's not influencing you. It's not driving you anymore. The truth of God's grace in your life. We all bear the responsibility of not forgetting. We don't want to forget. We don't want to forget that first love. You know, Jesus gave this encouraging word. In fact, it was kind of rebuked to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2 of Revelation. He says, this is what I have against you. You have forgotten your first love. You've forsaken your first love. It didn't mean they didn't love him. It just means they've forgotten the intimacy and the joy. You know, when you see those marriages that maybe go 50 years, they haven't sought to be one flesh. They haven't sought to sacrifice for one another. And they're there, they're married. But you know what? There's just this loss of love. And that's what happens in the faith. If we don't remind one another, if we don't remember the great things that he has done for us. That's, I think, why God calls us together as a church. We need each other's reminder. You, you, you need to hear week in and week out. We Come ye sinners. It, we need to hear that God is gracious and merciful. You go out all week long, you're being slowly secularized in a culture. I know you're not trying for that, but it just has its influence on you. And, and that you come in here and you get reminded of a gospel that is eternally true. We need to remind each other of this. Uh, this is why we have a church. This is why we celebrate the, the supper. You get to see it every month. This is why we seek to have godly leadership that challenge you and encourage you. This is why I appreciate you coming with hearts kind of opened up to receive this word that it might, it might bear fruit. So that's the first thing is remember. We must remember the beauty of... Now, they had God-saving acts. They had the Exodus. They had all these judges. We have the cross of Jesus Christ. Suffered, died, buried, raised again, seated at the right hand of the Father. We have that hope and that joy. Not forgetting it is not simply failing to remember it. It doesn't have an impact. Folks, this is why we strive and challenge you to see your affections grow. It isn't just what you believe in, but it's what you love. You know, the greatest commandment is to not believe in the Lord your God. It's to love the Lord your God, to love him. The affections matter. If you wonder if affections matter in a relationship and you're married, ask your spouse. Does it matter that I love you or that I'm just faithful to be married to you? I think they're going to say, yeah, I want you to love me. Love the Lord your God. We can't forget. Okay, secondly, is we have to remember the corrosive effects of success. You know, adversity will be less harmful to your faith than success will. 
Adversity will be a better friend of your faith than success will. Success has these hidden dangers. It's like sailing in the ocean when you find a reef. You don't see the reef, or it's hard to discern the reef. And boy, when you find it, you find it, because it'll rip the hole in your bottom of your boat. Success is like a it's a hidden danger. You see Gideon. Gideon found great success, and yet quickly you see him begin to own the success. He forgot it was the grace of God that brought the victory. And you see that in the way that he treated those towns, those, those leaders, scourging them, killing them. This is Gideon. He's not getting his fair due. This is the evidence of kind of pride. You, know, you may be successful in business. You may be successful in marriage and parenting. You may be successful in ministry. The danger is when you begin to think, you know what, I'm not getting admired like I should. I haven't been treated as fairly as I ought. I haven't got the recognition. Maybe you, you deal, you know, you don't like criticism. Criticism really makes you angry, and you want to lash out when someone criticizes you. Or perhaps you crave attention or thanksgiving for what you've done. These are all markers that success may be working its harm in you. You know, Proverbs 27, 21 says that the crucible is for silver, furnace for gold, but a man or a woman is tested by the praise they receive. It's a test. You know, Charles Spurgeon once finished after preaching a sermon. It's supposed to be an incredible sermon. I think most of them were. But this woman went up to him and she says, that was a magnificent sermon. And he said to her, yes, madam. So the devil whispered in my ear as I came down the steps of the pulpit. He knew the danger of success. He knew the danger of the accolades of people. We have to be wary of success. If you're successful, praise God for that. Thank him for it. Give him the recognition. Be public about the recognition you attribute to him over whatever you're successful at. But I'll tell you, success will bring more people down than adversity will. Adversity turns us to God. We have nowhere else to go. Success, we feel like we are God. So remember the corrosive effects of sin. Thirdly, remember to reconcile the differences between what you believe and what you do. Reconcile the differences between what you believe and what you do. You, you see this kind of whiplash affecting Gideon's life when he says, I will not be your king and my sons won't be either. He says, God will rule over you. And then the very next verse, hey, by the way, can you give me those jewels? You, know, you, you see him kind of deny this call to be king and yet then he seems to live in light of it with the women and the wives and the children and the money. Even naming his own son, as I said, Abimelech, my father is king. You see that, that he's saying one thing, but he's really living another thing altogether, even with the ephod. You know, wanting to write his own rule. You, you see this dichotomy between what he believes and, and what he does. Now listen, every one of us has a gap here. I mean, none of us live exactly and do as we believe. But do you know where the weak spots are? Do you know where the differences are? Have you confessed them to a spouse or a friend? I'm, I'm struggling in this area. Have you identified it and confessed it to God? We all have them. And, and here's the danger. The danger isn't just to us. You know, we can live this dichotomous life a long time. We can come to church and kind of say the right things. Most of us are quick enough to pick up the lingo and get the behavior. 
Uh, but then we go the rest of the week and we live the way we do that seems expedient or profitable or it seems most efficient in life. And, and we become quite utilitarian. Well, this works and I've got to do this and this, this has got to be... Well, I can't really say it the way I mean it. And, 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 and we play all these games and the, the gap widens. And I'll tell you, it'll ruin you because it's, it's like the person trying to figure out, do I want to stand on the boat? Do I want to stand on the pier? Decisions got to be made. If it doesn't, you're going to be kind of wet and looking silly as you go down. And not, not only that, but you see it affect the nature of his family. You see Gideon and Abimelech. Now, I'm not saying that the sins of the parent are borne by the child or the sins of the child are borne by the I'm not saying that. That's clear in Ezekiel 18. But what I am saying is that there are implications, inferences, that you as a parent or as an adult or you as a single person and you have workmates, if, if you believe this, but you live this way, the balance of the week, you're confusing people, and, and particularly children. You, don't, you, you have to know that Abimelech was confused by a father who, no, we're going to believe in God, but we're going to play God. Uh, that kind of dichotomy, um, I used to ask the kids, and you've heard me say this before if you've been in this church long enough, where do you see hypocrisy in my life? Tell me, please, because I can't see food on my face unless you tell me I have it. So where's the hypocrisy in my life? It, it, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to do. We're all hypocritical. But the way we rid our lives of, hypoc of hypocrisy is not perfection, but confession. It's not perfection. We'll never be perfect, but it's confessing those areas that we see, kind of the dissonance between what we believe. So, so look at your life. Ask your spouse or a friend, where do you see the dichotomies? Maybe it's language. Maybe it's the shows you watch. Maybe it's the way you spend your time. Uh, maybe it's the other stuff that you dabble in. But, but it, it isn't in accordance with what you really believe. Boy, I tell you, if you ask somebody and they told you honestly, you got a friend right there. You got a friend. So, so, so thirdly is remember to reconcile those differences now. And, and then fourth, uh, remember to pray for your leadership. I mean, you look at Gideon, and Gideon led them from bondage to Midian, and he led them in bondage to Baal. You know, this is bad leadership. Now, you know well enough that you're not called to follow the leadership of this church blindly, but you are called to follow. You're called to obey. You're called to imitate our lives. You're called to follow that. Now, and, and pray for us. You know, too often times, I think in this evangelical world, we look at leaders, and they may, be, they may have charisma, they may be great speakers, they may be great looking, uh, they may have everything working for them. But, but the character is the issue. It's not competence. You need to be competent as a leader. But character matters. Sometimes I hear in the broader evangelical world, people will quote this pastor or that pastor who's, who's famous, kind of a celebrity on, on the Internet or podcast, and they quote them as if they're almost like quoting the Bible. And yet you don't know their character you don't know how they handle their wife or their children. You don't know their family. And yet Paul, in determining who should be an elder, says go right to the family. Figure out if he's leading his own house well. So, so just be mindful to, to pray for us. We, we want to be God. The leaders of this church take this very seriously. It, it, it is, uh, 
yeah, it causes us pause to do this well because of Gideon's failed leadership, so the nation suffered. So you want to pray for us. You want to ask God for grace that he would, he would use us because, you know, our leadership in your life is for your good. And yet we stand before him on how we led you. So th- there's a lot in that. And you see that to finish well, you need to be led. And we live in a culture that is obviously very individualistic. You can't tell me what to do. My heart or my decisions rule my life. I want to challenge that. You need the counsel of your brothers and sisters to weigh in with you on the issues of your life. That's why he has designed us to be together. Okay, fifth, you need to remember that God's justice, it may be slow, but let me assure you, it will be certain and complete. You don't see God move fast. God never seems in a hurry. Even when things are going awry, you don't see him rushed and kind of wringing his hands and thinking things are getting ahead of him. He, but he moves slowly. It's like that old expression. The wheels of justice turn slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. God's justice will come, and it will come thoroughly. You see when he says, but God returned the evil, and God made all the evil return on their heads. God will often, as one author said, God says God in his judgment uses the tools of human rebellion against those who rebel. God does use the wickedness of others to bring wickedness upon themselves. He will bring a judgment. Uh, This is why we are free to love those who persecute us. Feed those who do evil to us. Do good to those who do evil. God's vengeance will be thorough and will be complete. We We need to remember that. Even with our own sin, God does bring justice. You think about the sexual freedoms that we promoted in the 50s and 60s. Just take those for example. And we're coming free. We're coming out from this oppression. This is Victorian age. And so we want everything free. And so you wonder now why 50 years later we have difficulty with marriage, with gender confusion, with sexual diseases, with illegitimate children. Uh, Do you think that we can just change the rules on God and think that later on things aren't going to work themselves out? I mean, there is a relationship there. I'm not trying to draw a one-to-one, apple-to-apple relationship. But there is a relationship there. God will bring about justice. This is to help us continue to finish well. And, and, then, and then sixth, I would say to you, and this is really important, remember that the greatest threat is nearer than you think. The greatest threat to finishing well is nearer than you think. What do I mean by this? Well, Rachel asked me, why so much ink on Abimelech? I mean, a whole chapter is spent on Abimelech. Well, Abimelech for us is a huge warning. See, see Abimelech reminds us that, that the threats that we face are not out there. Primarily, they're not out there. It's not culture. It's not the jihadists. It's not the communists. It's not big tech. It's not Wall Street. It's not social media. It's not China. Those are not the big threats that you will face in this life. The biggest threat that you're going to face is going to be right here. It's going to be your own life, your own desires, your own loves. That's the greatest threat you're going to face. Do you notice, if you go with me to chapter 10, verse 1, look what it says. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola, son of Pua, son of Dodo, 
a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Do you notice what's different here in 10.1 than all the other times that a judge has saved the people of Israel? There's no outside force. There's no Midianite. There's no Moabite. There's no Philistine. There's no country that is threatening Israel. He's saving Israel from Israel. He's saving the people from themselves is what he's doing here. Do you recognize what we have here? That the primary threat to finish well is often yourself. You know, if you remember the name Adolf Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann is, um, he was the grand architect of the Holocaust, right? So he kind of oversaw that whole destruction of six million, six million Jews. And um, when he was finally captured by Israel and brought back to trial, uh, a uh, Auschwitz survivor was brought to testify against him that had seen him, that had suffered from his atrocities and lost friends and family. And um, many of you, well, so w when he walks into the courtroom, he uh, falls down, starts weeping. And uh, of course, you're just seeing the courtroom. You, you don't know what's going on in his mind. He was interviewed later by 60 Minutes on this. Here's what he said. He said it struck him that he looked not like an evil monster at all, but he looked like an ordinary person, just like anyone else. Here's what he said. I realize that evil is endemic to the human condition, that any of us could commit the same atrocities. This is his concluding statement. He said Eichmann is in all of us. Now, we don't believe that. We have trouble believing that. A and yet we have to understand to finish well that, that it begins within us. This is why Richard Sibbs, you know, 400 years before this, Richard Sibbs says, men for the most part and women are not lost enough in their own feeling for a savior. A holy despair in ourselves is the ground of true hope. See, what this reminds us when you read chapter 9 of Abimelech is we need a different kind of deliverer. You know, we've had the Gideons, we've had Ehud, we've had these different, we need a different kind of savior. Uh, someone, you could get a great new president and he comes in and he fixes our culture and he, he fixes our education, he takes care of the pandemics that we face and he, and he fixes the, you know, the, the kind of international geopolitical issues. He can fix all those things, but the problem is not going to go away. It's right here. And this is why we need a Savior that can do more than change the external circumstances of our life. We need to be born again. This is why Jesus said, to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You must, it literally, you must be born from anew. You will continue to walk in the same ways. You must be born from anew, from above. You must be born of God. You know, it, only Jesus Christ has done that. You know, again, getting back to this crushing of the skull, if you, if you remember in Genesis 3, and I referenced this about three or four weeks ago, but, you know, the promise to the woman that a child would come and crush the head of the serpent, kind of the, you know, the picture of evil there, instigator of evil. And Jesus crushes the head of sin. That's what Abimelech is. He's our poster child for sin. His head is crushed. Christ crushed the head of sin by his own death, by his own death. This is what's to stimulate affections in us for him. That one Savior has come. This is why I plead with you, run to Christ. You know, apart. Now, the, now, let me just say, if you're not a Christian here, this is how you become a Christian. You realize, I can't change myself. I need to be changed. And so you, you flee to the arms of Christ, and by faith you place your life, and, and you ask him to forgive you and to, and to change you. And, and yet for the believer here, we still have to remember that while 
the dominion of sin has been broken, the presence of sin is still there. So we have to be aware of this. We have to remember that the enemy may be closer than you think. And then the last thing to remember is simply this, the mercy of God, the mercy of God. Why do I say this? Well, in chapter 10, we read those verses, Miriam read those verses, and do you realize that there was something different going on? He raised up Tola and Jair to save the people. But the people never asked to be saved. Did you notice that's the first time? They didn't cry out to God for help. They didn't plead to God to bring deliverance. They didn't ask for anything. They, they seemed kind of just stupid in their sin. And yet God sends judges to save. They didn't ask. Maybe they didn't even know. Maybe they were so twisted inward that they didn't even know what end was up. And yet God saves. This is the mercy of God. I, I ask you not to neglect the mercy. The mercy of God is he sends it to deliver when they're not asking. But we know this to be true in the New Testament. It's the same in Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Can you say I was ungodly when he died for me? Many of us say, I, just, I was doing all right. You know, I just need a little push over the goal line. No, we were ungodly. He says while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says it even worse. In Ephesians, at least, he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, you were dead, dead as a doornail, and yet he saved you and made you alive. By grace we've been saved. So don't neglect the mercy of God. He is a merciful. How, isn't it interesting how in a book as dark as Judges, we keep seeing God as kind and merciful and loving and pursuing us over and over? This is the kind of God we have. So we want to finish strong. We, we want to make that final day a glorious day. I was reading a review of a book that's just being published called The Gun Lap. I didn't know what The Gun Lap meant. The Gun Lap was a word that kind of entered our language in about 1949. But it's that lap, that final lap. So, you know, if you're runners in a race and, and, and the gun's fired and you start the race, and then on that final lap, uh, they fire the gun again. And that tells everybody, hey, this is the last lap. If you got anything in the tank, you want to use it right now. There is no, there is no lap after this lap. It's the last lap. It's the gun lap. When the gun goes off, you run. It's kind of what this sermon is. It's like a gun lap. It's to wake you up. It's to say, you know what, whether you're young or whether you're a little bit older, uh, this is the lap. We want to run it well. We need each other to do it. We need the Word. We need the Spirit of God to move in us. And I'm thankful that we have those things. So if you would, you look at this, we want to finish well. We want the thrill of victory to stay glorious to us. So let's just ask God right now, perhaps to lead us into a greater love for him. Or maybe, maybe you just need God to melt your heart. Maybe you've been hardened to him or convicted. Or maybe just comforted because you feel wounded. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.